Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 384 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Pioneer 10 picture, if you will, a fantastic world where not one, but twelve moons crisscross the sky, four of them moving backwards, four others the size of small planets. This is Jupiter, largest member by far of the Sun's family, monarch of the outer planets, a thousand times the size of Earth. In fact, twice as large as all the other planets combined. It is nearly a small star, a second sun, Jupiter, named for the Roman god of gods. To our eyes, it reveals only its dazzling cloud tops, rivers of wild color, and its trademark, the Great Red Spot, a perpetual storm of unknown origin. On Jupiter, day and night are each less than five Earth hours long, and a man would weigh 500 pounds. In early 1972, mankind launched Pioneer 10, the first mission to the outer planets, the first to venture out beyond the orbit of Mars, out through the Jupiter system, and eventually, out of our solar system completely. In the 1960s, American aerospace engineer Gary Flandro of the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory conceived of a mission known as the Planetary Grand Tour. The tour would exploit a rare alignment of the outer planets of the solar system. This mission would ultimately be accomplished in the late 1970s by the two Voyager probes. But, in order to prepare for such a complex mission, NASA decided in 1964 to experiment with launching a pair of probes to the outer solar system. An advocacy group named the Outer Space Panel and chaired by American space scientist James Van Allen worked out the scientific rationale for exploring the outer planets. NASA Goddard Space Center put together a proposal for a pair of Quote, galactic Jupiter probes, end quote, that would pass through the asteroid belt and visit Jupiter. These were to be launched in 1972 and 1973 during favorable windows that occurred only a few weeks every 13 months. Launch during other time intervals would have been more costly in terms of propellant requirements. The mission was approved by NASA in February 1969. The twin spacecraft were designated Pioneer F and Pioneer G before launch. Later, they were renamed Pioneer 10 and Pioneer 11. They formed part of the Pioneer program, a series of United States unmanned space missions launched between 1958 and 1978. This model was the first in the series to be designed for exploring the outer solar system, based on multiple proposals issued throughout the 1960s. The early mission objectives were 
to explore the interplanetary medium past the orbit of Mars, to study the asteroid belt and assess the possible hazard to spacecraft traveling through the belt, and to explore Jupiter and its environment. Later development stage objectives included the probe closely approaching Jupiter to provide data on the effect the environmental radiation surrounding Jupiter would have on the spacecraft instruments. More than 150 scientific experiments were proposed for these missions. The experiments to be carried on the spacecraft were selected in a series of planning sessions during the 1960s, then were finalized by early 1970. The selected experiments were to perform imaging and polarimetry of Jupiter and several of its moons, to make infrared and ultraviolet observations of Jupiter, to detect asteroids and meteoroids, to determine the composition of charged particles, and to measure magnetic fields, plasma, cosmic rays, and the zodiacal light. Additionally, observation of the spacecraft communications as it passed behind Jupiter would allow measurement of the planetary atmosphere, while tracking data would improve estimates of the mass of Jupiter and its moons. NASA Ames Research Center, instead of Goddard, was selected to manage the project as part of the Pioneer program. The Ames Research Center, under the direction of Charles F. Hall, was chosen because of its previous experience with spin-stabilized spacecraft. The requirements called for a small, lightweight spacecraft which was magnetically clean and which could perform an interplanetary mission. It was to use spacecraft modules that had already been proven in Pioneer 6 through nine missions. In February 1970, Ames awarded a combined $380 million to TRW Incorporated for building both of the Pioneer 10 and 11 vehicles, bypassing the usual bidding process to save time. B.J. O'Brien and Herb Lassen led the TRW team that assembled the spacecraft. Design and construction of the spacecraft required an estimated 25 million man-hours. To meet the schedule, the first launch would need to take place between February 29th and March 17th so that it could arrive at Jupiter in November of 1974. This was later revised to arrive at Jupiter in December of 1973 in order to avoid conflicts with other missions over the use of the Deep Space Network for communications and to miss the period when Earth and Jupiter would be at opposite sides of the Sun. The encounter trajectory for Pioneer 10 was selected to maximize the information returned about the radiation environment around Jupiter even if this caused damage to some systems. It would come within about three times the radius of the planet, which was thought to be the closest it could approach and still survive the radiation. The trajectory chosen would give the spacecraft a good view of the sunlit side. Now let's consider the design of Pioneer 10. And by the way, there is a picture of this on the homepage at spacerockethistory.com. The Pioneer 10 bus measures 36 centimeters deep and has six 76 centimeter long panels that form the hexagon structure. The bus houses propellant to control the orientation of the probe and eight of the 11 scientific instruments. The equipment compartment is inside an aluminum honeycomb structure to provide protection from meteoroids. To provide passive thermal control, a layer of insulation consisting of aluminized mylar and Kapton blankets was installed. 
Heat was generated by the dissipation of 70 to 120 watts from the electrical components inside the compartment. The heat range was maintained within the operating limits of the equipment by means of louvers located below the mounting platform. The spacecraft had a mass of about 260 kilograms at launch. The spacecraft carried 36 kilograms of liquid hydrazine monopropellant in a 42-centimeter diameter spherical tank. Orientation of the spacecraft was maintained with six 4.5 Newton hydrazine thrust thrusters mounted in three pairs. Pair 1 maintained a constant spin rate of 4.8 RPMs. Pair 2 controlled the forward thrust, and Pair 3 controlled the attitude. The attitude pair were used in conical scanning maneuvers to track Earth in its orbit. Orientation information was also provided by a star sensor, able to reference Canopus and two sun sensors. To power Pioneer 10, there are four SNAP-19 radioisotope thermoelectric generators, also known as RTGs. They are positioned on two three-rod trusses, each three meters in length and 120 degrees apart. This was expected to be a safe distance from the sensitive scientific experiments carried on board. Combined, the RTGs provide 155 watts at launch and decayed to 140 watts in transit to Jupiter. The spacecraft required 100 watts to power all the systems. The generators are powered by the radioisotope fuel plutonium-238, which is housed in a multiple-layer capsule protected by a graphite heat shield. The pre-launch requirement for the SNAP-19 was to provide power for two years in space. This was greatly exceeded during the mission. The plutonium-238 has a half-life of 88 years, so that after 29 years, the radiation being generated by the RTGs was at 80% of its intensity at launch. However, steady deterioration of the thermocouple junctions led to a more rapid decay in electrical power generation, and by 2001, the total power output was 65 watts. As a result, later in the mission, only selected instruments could be operated at any one time. For communication, the space probe included a redundant system of transceivers, one attached to the narrow beam high-gain antenna, the other to an omni antenna and a medium-gain antenna. The parabolic dish for the high-gain antenna was 2.74 meters in diameter and made from an aluminum honeycomb sandwich material. The spacecraft was spun about an axis that is parallel to the axis of this antenna so that it could remain oriented toward the Earth. Each transceiver could output 8 watts and transmitted data across the S-band using 2110 megahertz for the uplink from Earth and 2292 megahertz for the downlink to Earth with the deep space network tracking the signal. Data to be transmitted is passed through a convolution encoder so that most communication errors could be corrected by receiving equipment on Earth. The data transmission rate at launch was 256 bits per second, but that rate degraded by about 1.27 millibits per second for each day during the mission. Much of the computation for the mission was performed on Earth and transmitted to the spacecraft, where it was able to retain in memory up to five commands of the 222 possible entries by ground controllers. 
The spacecraft included two command decoders and a command distribution unit, a very limited form of a processor to direct operations on the spacecraft. This system required that mission operators prepare commands long in advance of transmitting them to the probe. A data storage unit was included to record up to 6,144 bytes of information gathered by the instruments. The digital telemetry unit was used to prepare the collected data in one of the 13 possible formats before transmitting it back to Earth. Each marvelously compact and reliable spacecraft weighs less than 600 pounds, including some 65 pounds of scientific instruments. The 11 onboard sensors include five radiation and charged particle detectors, one magnetometer, and three light measuring devices, one for the visible spectrum and one for either end of the visible range, the infrared and the ultraviolet. There's also an experiment to look for asteroids and one to measure the number of times Pioneer is struck by space dust. All of these devices together use less electricity than one 25-watt bulb. That's energy conservation. Two other investigations dig out new information about the Jupiter system from ground tracking data. The question arises, what can 65 pounds of space-borne instruments tell us that Earth's finest facilities can't? For example, the famous Mount Palomar telescope with its 17-foot diameter glass eye. A scientist who uses both Pioneer and Palomar is Dr. Guido Munch of Caltech. We have used the 200-inch telescope extensively for planetary observations. This is the largest operating telescope that has ever been built. With this telescope, the planet Jupiter appears of the size of a 50-cent piece. The Pioneer infrared experiment will provide a map of the heat emitted by the planet with a three-inch telescope, but at the distance of closest approach, the planet will cover one-fifth of the sky. And this is the advantage that we get from the three-inch telescope to the ground base with the large telescope here. The need to measure the quantity of heat accurately is that all the meteorology, all the motion of the clouds that we see in Jupiter is governed by the amount of heat coming from the inside. And we hope that a real understanding of the meteorology of Jupiter will in fact provide us with a better way to handle our weather problems. Specifically, the instruments included on Pioneer 10 were a helium vector magnetometer, this instrument measured the fine structure of the interplanetary magnetic field. It mapped the Jovian magnetic field and provided magnetic field measurements to evaluate solar-wind interaction with Jupiter. The magnetometer consisted of a helium field cell mounted on a 6.6-meter boom to partly isolate the instrument from the spacecraft's magnetic field. Next, a quadrospherical plasma analyzer. It peered through a hole in the large dish-shaped antenna to detect particles of solar wind originating from the sun. There was a charged particle instrument to detect cosmic rays in the solar system, a cosmic ray telescope, to collect data on the composition of cosmic ray particles and their energy ranges, a Geiger tube telescope to survey the intensities, energy spectra, and angular distributions of electrons and protons along the spacecraft's path through the radiation belts of Jupiter, a trapped radiation detector, 
a meteoroid detector. This was 12 panels of pressurized cell detectors mounted on the back of the main dish antenna to record penetrating impacts of small meteoroids. There was an asteroid slash meteoroid detector and this consisted of four non-imaging telescopes to track particles ranging from close by bits of dust to distant large asteroids. There was an ultraviolet photometer to determine the quantities of hydrogen and helium in space and on Jupiter. There was an imaging photopolarimeter. This imaging device relied upon the spin of the spacecraft to sweep a small telescope across the planet in narrow strips only about 0.03 degrees wide, looking at the planet in red and blue light. These strips were then processed to build up a visual image of the planet. And there was an infrared radiometer that was used to provide information on cloud temperature and the output of heat from Jupiter. Okay, let's move on to the launch. Pioneer 10 was launched on March 3, 1972 by NASA from Space Launch Complex 36A in Florida. Aboard an Atlas Centaur launch vehicle, which we have covered in previous episodes. The third stage of the launch vehicle was unique in that it consisted of a solid fuel Star 37E stage developed specifically for Pioneer missions. This stage provided about 15,000 pounds of thrust and spun up the spacecraft. The spacecraft had an initial spin rate of 30 revolutions per minute. 20 minutes following the launch, the vehicle's three booms were extended, which slowed the rotation rate to 4.8 revolutions per minute. This rate was maintained throughout the voyage. The launch vehicle accelerated the probe for a net interval of 17 minutes reaching a velocity of 32,114 miles per hour. After the high-gain antenna was contacted, several of the instruments were activated for testing while the spacecraft was moving through the Earth's radiation belts. Ninety minutes after launch, the spacecraft reached interplanetary space. Pioneer passed by the moon in 11 hours and became the fastest human-made object at that time. Two days after launch, the scientific instruments were turned on, beginning with the Cosmic Ray Telescope. After 10 days, all of the instruments were active. It's not easy to break out of the solar system. It requires enough speed to defeat the sun's gravity as well as Earth's gravity. Pioneer streaks away faster than any previous spacecraft, gulping distance at a million miles a day, passing the moon in just 11 hours. Still, Jupiter is nearly two years away. On the way out past Mars, the experiments are tested and calibrated. Their data add to mankind's understanding of the interplanetary climate of space. The asteroid belt, as some had imagined it. Before Pioneer 10, it was pictured as a region where great boulders grind together, creating a 40,000 mile per hour sandstorm. If so, it might have represented a perpetual barrier to outer planet flights. In fact, the pioneers found very little space dust in the asteroid belt. True, there are several thousand asteroids, some as big as Texas, but they should offer no menace to navigation. Pioneer gets its electricity from small onboard atomic heat sources. At a half billion miles, the sun is too weak to power solar cells. The spacecraft spins five times a minute for stabilization. On ground command, small thrusters fire to maintain the spin rate and to keep the large dish antenna precisely pointed at the receding Earth. This radio link is a two-way street 
a constant stream of information flows back about the health of the pioneer and its scientific observations. NASA's deep space network tracks the mission. So sensitive are these ears that they will hear Pioneer out to nearly two billion miles. During the first seven months of the journey, the spacecraft made three course corrections. The onboard instruments underwent checkouts, with the photometers examining Jupiter and the zodiacal light, and experiment packages being used to measure cosmic rays, magnetic fields, and the solar winds. The only anomaly during this interval was the failure of the Canopus sensor, which instead required the spacecraft to maintain its orientation using the two sun sensors. While passing through interplanetary medium, Pioneer 10 became the first mission to detect interplanetary atoms of helium. It also observed high-energy ions of aluminum and sodium in the solar wind. The spacecraft recorded important heliophysics data in early August 1972 by registering a solar shock wave when it was at a distance of 200 million miles. On July 15, 1972, Pioneer 10 was the first spacecraft to enter the asteroid belt located between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. The project planners expected a safe passage through the belt, and the closest the trajectory would take the spacecraft to any of the known asteroids was 5.5 million miles. One of the nearest approaches was to the asteroid 307 Nike on December 2, 1972. The onboard experiments demonstrated a deficiency of particles below a micrometer in the belt as compared to the vicinity of the Earth. The density of dust particles between 10 and 100 micrometers did not vary significantly during the trip from Earth to the outer edge of the belt. Only for particles with a diameter of 100 micrometers to 1 millimeter did the density show an increase by a factor of three in the region of the belt. No fragments larger than a millimeter were ever observed in the belt, indicating these are likely rare, certainly much less common than anticipated. As the spacecraft did not collide with any particles of substantial size, it passed safely through the belt emerging on the other side about February 15, 1973. Pioneer is managed and controlled from Ames Research Center located at Mountain View, California, near San Francisco. Pioneer Project Manager, Charles F. Hall. So we're in the mission control area for Pioneer 10, and behind us is the mission control room. Now, right now, they're preparing to send a few commands up to the spacecraft merely to uh, change the attitude of one of the instruments, the operating mode, so that we can uh, look on Jupiter. The interesting feature here is that the uh, round-trip light time, the time to get a message from here up to the spacecraft and then to get a return answer is an hour and a half. So our people in there have to be used to this uh, uh, hour and a half delay when they start planning the mission. Commander R10. Door Captain. Uh, we just received the stack clear message. Roger. R10 command, verify command stack loaded. Block message number nine. First command, IP whiskey two, time one four one zero three two decimal eight. Roger, copy. We're enabling message data this time. The Pioneers are run by men who send commands from Earth, not by automatic systems on board. This cuts complexity and costs. During encounter, it's busy here. For example, to command just the electronic camera that makes pictures of Jupiter, Pioneer Control transmits some 15,000 commands in just two months. In response to these commands, the camera scans Jupiter's turbulent cloud tops as Pioneer spins toward encounter. 
Because the spacecraft is moving at up to 80,000 miles per hour, and because Jupiter is rotating at 22,000 miles per hour, the scans do not immediately form a pretty picture. They must be decoded and corrected for distortion. First, the scans are built up line by line on a television display. This gives a quick look at the operation of the system and a tantalizing hint of the spectacular pictures buried in the raw data. After the first stage of prettying up, Jupiter's first close-up portrait emerges. Late November, 1973, 20 months after launch, Pioneer 10 closes in on Jupiter. Each hour brings the planet 20,000 miles closer. What lies below those inscrutable cloud tops? Could there be life in this maelstrom where pressures may reach 200,000 times Earth's? There are scientists who think that the answer might be yes, that deep in this raging atmosphere of ammonia, marsh gas, and helium, the self-replicating spark may have been struck. On November 6, 1973, the Pioneer 10 spacecraft was at a distance of 16 million miles from Jupiter. Testing of the imaging system began and the data was successfully received back at the Deep Space Network. A series of 16,000 commands were then uploaded to the spacecraft to control the flyby operations during the next 60 days. The orbit of the outer moon, Sinope, was crossed on November 8th. The bow shock of Jupiter's magnetosphere was reached on November 16th, as indicated by a drop in the velocity of the solar wind from 280 miles per second to 140 miles per second. The magnetopause was passed through a day later. The spacecraft instruments confirmed that the magnetic field of Jupiter was inverted compared to that of Earth. By the 29th, the orbits of all of the outermost moons had been passed and the spacecraft was operating flawlessly. Red and blue pictures of Jupiter were being generated by the imaging photopolarimeter as the rotation of the spacecraft carried the instrument's field of view past the planet. These red and blue colors were combined to produce a synthetic green image allowing a three-color combination to produce the rendered image. On November 26th, a total of 12 such images were received back on Earth. By December 2nd, the image quality exceeded the best images made from Earth. These were being displayed in real time back on Earth, and the Pioneer program would later receive an Emmy Award for this presentation to the media. The motion of the spacecraft produced geometric distortions that later had to be corrected by computer processing. During the encounter, a total of more than 500 images were transmitted. The trajectory of the spacecraft took it along the magnetic equator of Jupiter, where the ion radiation was concentrated. Peak flux for this electron radiation was 10,000 times stronger than the maximum radiation around the Earth. Starting on December 3rd, the radiation around Jupiter caused false commands to be generated. Most of these were corrected by contingency commands, but an image of Io and a few close-ups of Jupiter were lost. Similar false commands would be generated on the way out from the planet. Nonetheless, Pioneer 10 did succeed in obtaining images of the moons Ganymede and Europa. The image of Ganymede showed low albedo features in the center and near the south pole, while the north pole appeared brighter. Europa was too far away to obtain a detailed image although some albedo features were apparent. The trajectory of Pioneer 10 was chosen to take it behind Io, allowing the refractive effect of the moon's atmosphere on the radio transmissions to be measured. 
This demonstration that the ionosphere of the moon was about 430 miles above the surface of the day side and the density ranged from 60,000 electrons per cubic centimeter on the day side down to 9,000 on the night side. An unexpected discovery was that Io was orbiting within a cloud of hydrogen that extended for about 500,000 miles with a width and height of 250,000 miles. A smaller 68,000 mile cloud was believed to have been detected near Europa. It was not until after Pioneer 10 had cleared the asteroid belt that NASA selected a trajectory towards Jupiter that offered the slingshot effect that would send the spacecraft out of the solar system. Pioneer 10 was the first spacecraft to attempt such a maneuver and became a proof of concept for the missions that would follow. Such an extended mission was not part of the original thought process, but it was still planned for prior to launch. At the closest approach to Jupiter, the velocity of the spacecraft reached 82,000 miles per hour, and it came within 82,178 miles of the outer atmosphere of Jupiter. Close-up images of the Great Red Spot and the Terminator were obtained. Communication with the spacecraft then ceased as it passed behind the planet. The radio occultation data allowed the temperature structure of the outer atmosphere to be measured, showing a temperature inversion between the altitudes with 10 and 100 millibars pressure. Temperatures at 10 millibars level ranged from minus 133 to minus 113 degrees C, while temperatures at 100 millibar level were minus 183 to minus 163 degrees C. The spacecraft generated an infrared map of the planet, which confirmed the idea that the planet radiated more heat than it received from the sun. Crescent images of the planet were then returned as Pioneer 10 moved away from the planet. As the spacecraft headed outward, it again passed the bow shock of Jupiter's magnetosphere. As this front is constantly shifting in space because of dynamic interaction with the solar wind, the vehicle crossed the bow shock a total of 17 times before it escaped completely. Pioneer 10 crossed the orbit of Saturn in 1976 and the orbit of Uranus in 1979. On June 13, 1983, the craft crossed the orbit of Neptune, at that time the outermost planet, and so became the first human-made object to leave the proximity of the major planets of the solar system. The mission came to an official end on March 31, 1997, when it had reached a distance of 6.2 billion miles from the sun, though the spacecraft was still able to transmit coherent data after this date. After March 31, 1997, Pioneer 10's weak signal continued to be tracked by the Deep Space Network to aid the training of flight controllers in the process of acquiring deep space radio signals. There was an advanced concept study applying chaos theory to extract coherent data from the fading signal. The last successful reception of telemetry was received from Pioneer 10 on April 27, 2002. Subsequent signals were barely strong enough to detect and provided no usable data. The final, very weak signal from Pioneer 10 was received on January 23, 2003, when it was 7.5 billion miles from Earth. Further attempts to contact the spacecraft were unsuccessful. 
A final attempt was made on the evening of March 4, 2006, the last time the antenna would be correctly aligned with Earth. No response was received from Pioneer 10. NASA decided that the RTG units had probably fallen below the power threshold needed to operate the transmitter. Hence, no further attempts at contact were made. Because it was strongly advocated by Carl Sagan, Pioneer 10 and 11 carried a 152 by 229 millimeter gold anodized aluminum plaque in case either spacecraft was ever found by intelligent life forms from another planetary system. The plaques featured the nude figures of a human male and female along with several symbols that were designed to provide information about the origin of the spacecraft. The plaque is attached to the antenna support struts to provide some shielding from interstellar dust. Here's Carl Sagan to close out this episode. But in the remote contingency that there are interstellar spacefaring societies which might someday pick up this derelict no longer radioing, we thought we would put a message on it to indicate a little bit of where we are, when we are, and who we are. We think that the, the information on where we are and when we are indicated in this part of the message by the configuration of certain cosmic objects called pulsars will be completely obvious to uh, any society capable of traveling between the stars. These two objects will be more mysterious because it is unlikely that there will be human beings anywhere else, even though there may be other creatures elsewhere. And the plaque has served a very useful purpose in making us think about what sort of impression we might wish to give to the cosmos. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 384 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Pioneer 10. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. The 2022 donors page is up to date, so please go by the website, spacerockethistory.com, to make sure your name is there at the correct level with the correct longevity emoji. If there's a problem, please don't hesitate to let us know by emailing spacerockethistory at gmail.com. And if you would like to donate by mail, which works great for me, please use my new permanent address which has been active for about seven months. If you don't know what it is, just email me and I'll give it to you. Believe it or not, my Twitter handle is working again. Of course, I lost over 1,100 followers during the hacking incident. But the account is back up, and my handle is the same as it used to be. It is at SpaceRocketHist, so please follow if you can. Our next episode should appear by March 24th. If you are looking for old episodes, the first 205 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Now, if you are using Google Podcasts, you have to type in the whole name of the podcast, Space Rocket History Archive, or the search engine won't find it. Google made some changes, and who knows why. And, by the way, if you began the emoji maneuver last year, oh, it is a wonderful time to complete it now. Had a few afterthoughts. The podcast has reached 1972 now, and I was happy to start it out with Pioneer 10, which was a very important uncrewed mission, and I was delighted to get to cover it. It was super impressive for the time and paved the way for the Voyager probe, the beginning of the exploration of the outer planets 
I didn't feel the need to cover the carrier rocket in detail on this episode because we had just covered the Atlas Centaur in previous episodes, so I considered, I just passed on that and just sort of moved through it. Now, I found it interesting that the power supply used for Pioneer 10 was very similar to the one used on the moon to power the ALSEP with the radioisotope and the thermocouples. Now, a word on pronunciation. Some call one of Jupiter's moons Io, and some call it Eo. Now, I believe Eo is a more correct pronunciation, but I want you to feel free to pronounce it any way you want to. If you like Io, that's fine with me. But I'm sticking with Eo. <laughs> okay. How did you like it when uh, Mr. Sagan was bragging on that plaque he designed? It would, saying it would be obvious to any alien exactly what it meant. <laughs> I thought that statement was just a bit ridiculous. He really had no idea what kind of life form could encounter that plaque. And speaking of encountering that plaque, did you know in the film Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, a Klingon bird of prey destroys Pioneer 10 just for target practice? <laughs> I don't know, and the plaque shown on that movie too. I don't know if you have seen that movie. It's an oldie and a baddie. In fact, most fans of Star Trek consider it the worst Trek movie made. Coincidentally, that one was directed by Mr. Shatner himself. <laughs> Alright, for those interested in the house prog progress, it's been a very frustrating four weeks, folks. And uh, But I, let me update you here. The leak in the 12-foot-long uh, trench in the basement floor was addressed. But I don't know if it was fixed, because we hadn't had enough rain to tell. The gas log installation was finally completed. Uh, they trimmed out the bedroom window, but the front window is just an absolute disaster. The coat closet door was finally installed. But the carpet is still not installed. The sheetrock was repaired where they replaced the shower, but it was a bit of a sloppy job, and they wound up actually firing that sheetrocking crew. The final electrical is complete, except for a missing light in the kitchen, one outside receptacle, and of course the basement lights still aren't working. And, of course, there are still two registers missing on the HVAC system. Now, that's going to take about 15 minutes to install. In fact, if they would just hand me the registers, I would just go put them in. The plumbing is finished, I think, unless something comes up. The big showstopper from last week has been partially stopped, solved. Uh, the contractor went to a different vendor and found a garage door that they claim will be installed on March 22nd. Of course, they've moved our settlement day to March 18th, so it is possible we will get to move in late the following week, the week of March 21st. I'll try not to let that affect the release of episode 385. And that is your house update. Over the last two weeks, we had some contributions. I'd like to thank Michael S. from the UK who donated at the Starship level and earned a Galaxy emoji. Stuart L. from Texas sent in another donation and moved to the Orion level with rocket, moon, satellite, and shooting star emojis. Peter M. from California sent in another donation and moved to the Mercury level. David M. donated at the Mercury level. Alan M. increased his pledge on Patreon to the commercial level. 
Matt G. from Rhode Island increased his pledge on Patreon to the Orion level. C.E.B. pledged on Patreon at the Salute Skylab level. And Lynn S. from Pennsylvania pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Our total Patreon donors have dropped to 248 with a goal of 300 by the end of 2022. Our total donors for 2022 have reached 295 with an overall goal of 500 for the year. So, if you're enjoying the podcast, that has been running nine, nine years without commercial interruptions. And you can afford it. Please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. Well, hasn't this farmhouse project been an ordeal? With the lingering list of things still need to be done or redone, I feel the need to think about something happy, like how I will celebrate once we all move in our homes. (coughs) Now, for the winner of the drawing, remember you're going to get the choice of an SRH magnet, or the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or the NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Patrick Carmichael. Patrick Carmichael, if you would email us spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks. To all 295 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. My sources for this episode were NASA, Gunter's Space Page, Encyclopedia Britannica, The Pictorial History of World Spacecraft by Bill Yin, Rockets and Missiles by Bill Gunston, The Encyclopedia of U.S. Spacecraft by Bill Yin, and Wikipedia. That's all we have for this episode. I'll do my best to have episode 385 posted by March 24th, 2022. So long for now.